in the event that you approach an assailant, here's what I want you to do. You're gonna pull up, left hip forward, placing your right hand on your away hip thusly, giving the illusion that you have a gun, which of course we both know you don't. Okay? But you know what we do have? Our voices! We have our voices. You remember one thing from today, it's this. The mind is the only weapon that doesn't need a holster. Right, awesome. How long do we get for lunch? Half hour, but I eat in 20, which leaves me five minutes for social time, five minutes to get refocused. Training other people, teaching other people, setting an example for others to follow and imitate is a very important part of life. It's a very important priority, especially as a follower of Jesus. Now, this week, as we are continuing our current series, Make It Count, we're going to consider how a Make It Count approach to faith provides an example that will inspire others. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 27, on our, in our first week, we said that Paul used the words, stand firm. And we said that this was a military term, which means to stay at your post. And so, stand firm is to be understood within the context of being under attack. Even when the battle intensifies, even when things become overwhelming, you stand firm. A soldier will not leave their post, will not allow themselves to become distracted from their focus. Now, I'm referencing this terminology again today because Paul uses this same uh, terminology and reference again in our scripture this morning in chapter 4, verse 1, as he is calling the whole church in Philippi to stand firm to stay focused, to persevere. He's asking them one more time. Well, of course, they're not an army. They're not an army, but he's using this as a spiritual illustration. And within the spiritual context, Paul is calling the Philippian believers to never compromise, to never get distracted from their focus. Now, a little earlier in the service, Today, our scripture was read, and uh, if you would like to follow along as we're going through this morning, again, just a reminder, it was Philippians chapter 3, verses 17, up to chapter 4, verse 1. As you look at this scripture, you'll see that Paul offers three pieces of advice in this section to help the Philippian believers stay focused when difficult and painful times come into their lives. And so, the first piece of advice he gives them is to follow godly examples. At the time that Philippians was written, the Bible as we know it today had not been compiled into one book. And so, followers of Jesus at the time that Paul is writing this letter wouldn't have had the luxury of owning or reading their own copy of the Word of God as we would today. 
And so when they would attend the synagogues, those who came from the Jewish background, they would hear the uh, scriptures read. They would hear the law read. They would hear the prophets read in those services. And then on top of that, for those who are, were, were followers of Jesus in the early church, there would be letters like this one, Philippians, the, church, the letter to Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and so on. Letters to the congregations there, to people there that would be read in the services. And these letters would often circulate. The gospels themselves, the four gospels, would be circulated amongst the churches. And so that's how they heard the word of God read. That's how they were exposed to the word of God. Because of that, the early church relied heavily on the apostles and on church leadership to teach them about Jesus, to teach them about salvation, to teach them about kingdom living and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. The early church leaders established this pattern of leading and teaching based on the teachings of Jesus and a godly example of their own lives as they went before the people. Teaching the people to put into practice and to live out what they had learned, what they had received, what they had heard, and what they were seeing in the lives of others. Now, in order to help the Philippian church to accomplish, them, accomplish this, Paul calls for them to follow him, to follow the fellow leader's example of staying focused and avoiding compromise. Paul is modeling a make-it-count approach to faith for them as he is writing to them from prison. He has set an example for them to follow, and now they have to decide if they're willing to follow. Paul knows that a make-it-count approach to faith not only benefits the life of the one who adopts such an approach to faith, but also provides an example that will inspire others around them as they are watching the lives of people who are living this way. Now, Paul is not suggesting that he or the other leaders are perfect examples, that they've arrived spiritually, that they had it all together spiritually. He's not suggesting that. What he's saying is, there are godly examples around these people who are modeling a passion to pursue Jesus as the main priority of their lives, as the greatest passion of their lives. These people are standing firm, holding their ground in the midst of attack and hardship, and they're staying focused on Jesus. And what Paul is asking these believers as he writes to them, he's asking them to follow the example of what they are witnessing around them. Focusing on godly examples will help them stand firm and live a make-it-count life. I believe the Bible is very clear about the mission that followers of Jesus are called to orient our lives around. Clear in that we are called to make disciples, to make apprentices for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus modeled for us. That's what he taught us. That's what he showed us through his ministry. It's what he has called us to model in our own lives 
to others around us. That's what he's called us to do. Now, discipleship or apprenticeship hinges on someone being an example for someone else to follow. Not that the goal of discipleship is to make people like us. And I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It's not about making people like us. But I believe Paul frames it very well in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 when he says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We are passing on the example of Jesus through how we live our lives as we disciple others. Now, as I see it, there are two unique challenges to this. The first is being discipled. That's the first challenge. Because all of us, regardless of our age, regardless of how long we've been a follower of Jesus, regardless of how spiritually mature we may think we are, all of us need to be discipled by others. We've not arrived yet. Anybody here arrived? You wouldn't say if you did, if you were. We've not arrived yet. There's more room to grow. There's more change possible in our lives. There's more surrender for us to release yet. And so we allow others to come into our lives and to help be used of God to shape us into the people that God is creating us to be. And sometimes I think about the younger generation in our church. I think of our kids. I think of our youth group. I think of our young adults. And as I sit back, I realize how much they're shaping me. They're shaping me. When I think about working with a younger staff, and as I look around that table from week to week as we're discussing ministry and where God is leading us, and I realize that as much as they have a lot less experience than I have, they're shaping me. God is using them to shape me. Sometimes my family shapes me. Sometimes they shape me a lot. My point is, apprenticeship is a lifelong journey. And I want to encourage us today, stay on that road and look to others as an example. You might be surprised that sometimes it might be the least likely person that God is going to use to help shape your life the most. It might be the least likely who will have the most positive impact on your life. The second challenge, I believe, is discipling others. Deliberately setting out to help shape the life of another person for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what we're called to. When we get out of bed in the morning, to deliberately set out that day to shape the lives of others as God, by his spirit, works through us to make disciples for the kingdom of God. Our call is to do life with others with the intention of helping them on their spiritual journey. And to do this, it's very important that we be who Jesus has called us to be, to be good examples, to live lives that are worth modeling. If those pursuing Jesus need good examples to follow, then there needs to be people who will be those good examples. And so it's important, I believe, to ask ourselves, 
Am I one of those people? Am I one of those people? Am I an example that someone else can look to, can follow? Do I want another person to follow my example? Is how I'm living my life, is that what I would like to see replicated in the lives of others? Am I being a good example? Having good examples to follow is critical to a make-it-count approach to faith. Secondly, Paul says reject bad examples. As much as Paul and the church leaders at this time were examples to be followed, there were others who were influential that were bad examples. Now, Paul doesn't attack these people with anger or resentment. In fact, he's, he's actually really sad that there are those who are setting a bad example. In fact, his words are, he says, I'm saying these things with tears. I'm saying them with sorrow in my heart. Because Paul says, they're enemies of the cross. These bad examples are enemies of the cross. What that means is they are in opposition to the cross. And he calls them this. In fact, what he's basically saying is they are antichrist. Not my favorite name to be called. They're opposed to the cross. They're opposed to Jesus Christ. And he calls them this because of their character. Their lifestyles, because their character and lifestyles are opposed to the character and the call of God. Now, it's important to understand that these people he's talking about, they're not pagans. They're not unbelievers. They're not no, those who, who have no knowledge of the gospel, who are living in culture. That's not who these people are. These people that Paul is identifying here are people who profess to be followers of Jesus, yet they're living sinful lives. They were the extreme opposite of the Judaizers that we talked about last week. These Judaizers who focused on adding additional layers and requirements to the faith by focusing on legalism instead of grace. They're the opposite of that. These followers of Jesus were not attempting to add additional requirements. They were doing the opposite. They're showing no restraint. They're setting their own standards. They're not pursuing the kingdom of, uh, as Jesus had called them to. They have a form of godliness, but the truth is, this particular group are living in sin. And it appears from Paul's writing that they're not members of the Philippian congregation, but they are known by the congregation, and they are influencing members of the congregation at the time that he's writing. And Paul says, their destiny, the result of their willful sinfulness, their double lives, is eventually going to lead to their destruction. Now, this word destruction is actually an end times word. It's not necessarily meaning that their destruction will come while they are here on this earth. It may or it may not, but that's not what he's talking about there. This is a word that is used within the context of eternal things. And so what Paul is saying is that these people who are living 
double lives pretending to be spiritual when there's sin in their lives are headed for a lost eternity even though they appear to be and pretend to be spiritual. Now Paul says their God is their stomach. Now this is not a reference to people who like to eat at the Mandarin. The stomach is symbolic for physical appetites. And what Paul is saying here is that these people are pursuing their physical, sinful appetites without restraint or consideration of anyone other than themselves. In fact, they're sensualists. They're obsessed with physical and sexual pleasure at any cost. And Paul makes an interesting statement. He says, their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. By living the way they are living, they are exalting, they are elevating, they are glorifying what should be shameful. Their mind, their focus is on earthly things, not kingdom things. Their whole interest was in the here and now, in the sensual, in the physical, in the material things. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but their lives show that they only want the world and sin and things. And Paul calls for the Philippian church to reject their examples. You know, if I were to be honest with you this morning, more times than I wish, I've had to come to terms with the reality that those that I have esteemed as sincere followers of Jesus, those who I've admired even, people I've respected and looked up to, were not who they claimed to be. Now, sometimes it's high-profile leaders that we don't know personally, but we read their books and we follow their ministries, and, and, and they bring a lot of attention positively to the kingdom of God, and then in one sweeping moment, they bring all of this negative attention, and it seems like it's not something of the past, but it's just an issue that continues to, to haunt the church even to today. Sometimes it's a high-profile leaders, but most often it's just fellow followers of Jesus among us. To be honest, when I become aware of these things, initially, I get angry. I get angry because of the negative impact, mostly on the lives of those who are caught in the middle. Because the truth is, no one sins alone. We think our sin is our own. We think our sin is private. But no one sins alone. Others are always hurt when we sin. It may be our spouse. It may be our children. It may be our grandchildren. It may be friends, family, parents. Who knows? But someone other than us is also hurt when we sin. No one sins alone. And so because of that, sometimes I get angry, not so much because of what the person has done, but I see the fallout on innocent people who don't deserve to be treated that way. But like Paul, more often than not, I'm saddened. I'm sad for the person who bought into the enemy's lies. 
I'm sad for the people who love and are faithful to the people who bought into the enemy's lies. See, the issue that Paul is addressing here is not unique to his times. The issue of people who appear to be spiritual, spiritual, but whose lives pursue sin and lust and material things is as relevant today as it was back then. And the result is there are people who shouldn't be imitated. Their lifestyles should be rejected. They can't be an example. They can't be an example to their children. They can't be an example to their grandchildren. They can't be an example to their spouse or their family. They can't be an example to their co-workers or their neighbors or fellow believers in the church community they're a part of. They can't be examples because of their life, their lifestyles. Their shame becomes their glory. And the result is those around them lose respect and confidence and trust. And if I was to be brutally honest, the worst part, the part that bothers me the most is the arrogance. It's the arrogance that I see commonly displayed from the lives of people who've made their shame their glory. Not willing to admit the truth when confronted with it. Not willing to repent when they know what they've done is wrong. Not willing to ask for forgiveness. Don't be that person that first of all lives the double life and pretends to be something you are not that disqualifies ourselves from being someone that those closest to us can emulate and can follow. People who do not have a faithful relationship with Jesus will not be able to live a make-it-count life. They can't. They can't be a good example to others when hardship comes because there's nothing in there of significance to draw from. It's all on the outside. Number three, aren't you glad you came on Seeker Sunday? Focus on Jesus' return. Paul begins verse 20 with the word, but... But is a transition word. Paul is demonstrating a contrast between the previous group that he's just talked about and true followers of Jesus. He's back to good examples again. And he says that while the focus of the bad examples was on the earthly realm, now he's, you know, in terms of looking at the here and now, satisfying their temporary pleasures at the cost of eternal reward. But he says the true followers of Jesus turn aside from the attraction of the temporary. They turn aside from the pleasure. They turn aside from the greed to focus instead on eternal values. And according to Paul, true followers of Jesus live in the present with their future focused on the coming of Jesus. 
Paul reminds them that ultimately, they're citizens of heaven. Now, the Philippians understood this more than we probably realize. This is a reminder to them, Paul is using an illustration here, that they can relate to. Because Philippi is a colony of Rome. And even though they're physically a long geographical distance from Rome, although most of the people there have never been to Rome, they lived as citizens of Rome, and they were proud of their Roman citizenship. It was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. Even though the Philippian believers have never seen heaven, They've not been there yet. They are citizens of heaven, Paul says. And they should live like they are citizens of heaven. And so Paul reminds them that they are eagerly waiting for Jesus. I like this word eagerly because it means something different than what we would think it means. When we are eager, we're anxious, we want to get, get on with it. But really what the word eager here means is to wait with great care, great attention, and perseverance. That's what he's calling them to. As opposed to the others who are careless with their lives, who are focused only on their own benefits, he says, eagerly await. For whom? Paul calls Jesus their Savior from heaven. And he says, when Jesus comes, he's going to transform them. He's going to change their their outward form. He says, now you experience bodies of lowliness. You experience weakness. You experience disease. You experience sin. And you experience death. But when he comes, he says, you will be transformed. Paul's point is this. The eager anticipation of the return of Jesus will protect these believers from earthly enticements and keep them focused on the kingdom. That's what keeps us focused on the kingdom is the reality that Jesus is coming back. And so followers of Jesus who live their lives focused on the coming of Jesus can live lives that set an example to others when life is hard Because they stay focused and they persevere because their focus is on God's promise in the future. Truth be told, I believe there's a lot of dysfunction in our time around the discussion of the return of Jesus. I observe two extremes. The first is that many have become so consumed with trying to decode Scripture, to figure out what every sentence and word and illustration means so they can relate it to the times that we're living in, so consumed with that, that they fail to live as citizens of heaven Because what citizens of heaven are called to do is live out the work of the kingdom. 
And I believe, sadly, the work of harvesting while it is still day is quickly passing and many are participating instead and focusing their energy on an activity that Jesus clearly warned us against. You can't know the day and the time. You're not supposed to. So why are you spending your time trying to figure it out like a puzzle to put it together? That's not where we're called to put our energy. No one can know the hour. And some people have become, like the cliche says, so heavenly minded, so consumed with end time discussion, they are truly of no earthly good in terms of the kingdom contribution that Jesus has asked us to make. Making disciples. No time for that. I'm trying to figure out how the latest thing in the European Union relates to the book of Revelation. Move on. Move on. Some are so, the other extreme is this. Some are so consumed with life here and now that they see heavenly citizenship as something they hope to receive in the future, when in fact it should be something that is relevant to their lives today. We've never been there. We haven't seen it yet. But we live like it's where we're from. Culture teaches us, encourages us to acquire, consume, and focus on what we want and what we like. Culture bombards us with the thinking that we are to live for today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. I don't want all this to escape me before I die. It may come as a shock to you, but I don't have a bucket list. I I just don't. Folks, people who, who buy into the teaching of culture that we are here to acquire and consume and focus on ourselves and for life to all be about us and to live for today, those who buy into that cease anticipating the return of Jesus. We can't focus on the return of Jesus because we're too busy focusing on right here and right now. Now, I would like to suggest that neither of these is what Paul is promoting here. We are to live our lives as citizens of heaven, eagerly anticipating Jesus' return, waiting with great care and perseverance. Jesus is coming back. We believe that. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, he will usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness. When Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will be resurrected, and those of us who may still be here will be changed. That's what the Bible teaches us. There's not going to be any more sin or disease or death. And as I think about that, you know, isn't that, don't you long for that? Do you look for that? Do you want that more than anything, this moment when Jesus appears? 
See, not only should this be our longing, not only should this be our longing, but our longing should inspire others to long for it too. To long for it too. The early church so believed that they would see the return of Jesus in their lifetime that when some of them started to die, they became so alarmed, they didn't know what to do. They felt that maybe everything they put their trust in was not true. And that's why Paul and others had to write to them and and help them understand that it may not happen in your lifetime, but it doesn't change your anticipation of it. Jesus' return is our hope. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. A make-it-count approach to faith provides an example that will inspire others. And so in light of that, let's live lives that inspire others to pursuing Jesus. Let's, let's, let's inspire others to setting, let's set good examples that other people can follow as we follow the example of Jesus. Let's frame our lives in the context of the kingdom of God, that we are citizens of heaven and we long for the day when Jesus will return and usher in God's kingdom in its fullness. A make-it-count approach to faith inspires an example that other people can be drawn to. And that's what we're called to this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to invite our prayer team, if they would come and take their place this morning. And I want to encourage all of us today, myself included, because I have a lot of days where being a citizen of heaven is not the first thing in front of me. I have a lot of days when I feel the guilt and the shame that I'm not the example I wish I could have been to the people who know me best that live under my roof. Or work with me on a daily basis. Not always the best example. Not always someone who inspires others. But I want to be. And I've really learned the art of repentance. (laughs) I'm really good at it. I, I think I hold a graduate level. I've had to. Because some days I'm just so flawed. I had to throw myself at the feet of Jesus and beg for his forgiveness. Maybe that's where you are today. As the Holy Spirit breaks through the walls and the hardness of our hearts, I encourage you to allow the oil of the Spirit to soften your heart this morning. In this season of Lent, What a better practice we could do than repent. Repent. And ask God to come 
change us and forgive us and help us to be the citizens of heaven he's called us to be. Prayer team, would you come? If you'd like us to pray with you this morning, then you can come and we'll, we'd be honored to do that. And we want to live like citizens of heaven. We want to be examples that others can follow. We want to inspire others to pursue Jesus with all of their hearts. Would you help us, Lord? Help us to be people who seek your face, who long for you, who are focused on you as our number one priority. Father, I pray this morning, if there are any in this room who feel that what they have done is so shameful that they have to keep it buried because they can't acknowledge it. Would you help them to find freedom in your presence this morning? Lord, if there are those in this room that need to reach that point and haven't, would you convict their hearts today? Lord, I pray that none would be lost in our journey as citizens of heaven to that day when you come back, that none would be lost, that all would be redeemed. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place this morning, as we go out to live in this world, a world that thinks and acts and lives different than what you've called us to, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to stay faithful to you in the midst of that. And not just to stay faithful, but to be examples Salt, light, love, help, compassion to a world that's broken and hurting and spiraling out of control. Lord, help us to realign ourselves afresh to you, we pray. Lord, as we leave this place this morning, thank you that we had this opportunity. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you care about us, our situation, our circumstances. Thank you that you not just care, but you're involved, even when we can't see it. And so we lift our burdens and concerns to you this morning. And as we walk out this door, I pray that we'll walk out feeling unburdened because we've been able to meet with you and give it to you afresh this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for being here.